clap. Shall I start? So, welcome to another episode of PhDivas. We are a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. I'm Dr. Zain Yao, a PhD in English. And I'm Dr. Liz Wayne, a PhD in biomedical engineering. Yeah. <laughs> um, just in case if there's any confusion in that regard. For- and for Black History Month, it made sense for us to turn to a very dear friend of mine who is a historian of Black history. And so we're very proud to have um, Professor Mari Crabtree on the show. Uh, welcome, Mari. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, I went to Cornell as well with both um, Zion and Liz and have a PhD in history. Um, I focus mostly on the 20th century and post-emancipation experiences in the South, although um, I am branching out to the North and sort of a nation- nationwide <laughs> uh, project for the next uh, book. Awesome. Um, and so Mari is actually uh, recording with us from the Char- College of Charleston right now, uh, which is where she's currently located. I think, are you in the... Um, what's your depart- department specifically, actually, right now? I'm in African American Studies. Okay. And as you were saying, it's a very interesting time to be teaching African American Studies, especially in the South. It is, in particular this week. Um, next week on Wednesday, Bree Newsom um, is coming to campus. She's been invited to give a talk about her so cool. activism. So yeah. uh, she... Uh, She's an activist. She climbed up the flagpole in front of the mm-hmm. uh, state capitol, I think, in 2015. And this was after the Dylan Roof mm-hmm. shooting, right, of the also nine. Also in Charleston. Um, also in Charleston. Right, so just a couple blocks from where my office is on campus is where that happened. Wow. Um, so in Columbia, which is the capital of South Carolina, she uh, climbed up the flagpole and took down the Confederate flag and was promptly arrested for um, whatever it is that they arrested her for. And so she's going to come to uh, <laughs> campus to give a talk. And um, I was really excited about her coming, and a lot of my students were as well. Um, and then uh, a few days ago, the South Carolina Secessionist Party, which is a, a thing. I mean, they were the first, what, right, the first state yes, to secede? Yes, it was their idea. The union? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so there is a like a oh, the there's like a club, a party, the South Carolina Secessionist Party that um, is very angry that she's been invited to campus, and so um, mm. they have been calling the multicultural multicultural student program um, in order to complain and to try to get them to uninvite her to campus and um, have been putting at least veiled threats online um, and a series of extremely, wow. extremely racist kind of comments about her and black people more generally online as a result of what they see um, as the call to Charleston inviting someone who has disrespected their uh, symbol of the South um, to campus. So oh. today... I wake up in the morning yeah. and I check Facebook fairly. I think I'm still in bed. And there's a mm-hmm. uh, friend of mine who's a colleague who says that the uh, main square, which is right next to campus and actually right next to where the church 
uh, with AME churches, that was uh, where the massacre happened. There's a, a Confederate flag flying on top of a building, a parking garage, because that was this concerted effort by the South Carolina Secessionist Party to sort of place these Confederate flags all over downtown Charleston um, because Bree Newsom is coming in a few days. And so um, because it was a public wow. garage, like a city garage, and this was on his car, so he actually brought a flagpole apparently to the top of the garage, set up the Whoa. flagpole so you can see it like it oh, looks like it's on the wow. building. Wow, okay. And, okay. Um, you know, is sitting there until closing time to fly the Confederate flag. And there's a few people doing that today. So first wow. thing in the morning. Special snowflake. Yeah. Well, actually, that's what he called the uh, counter-protesters who set up right next to him. What did he call them? Uh, a special liberal snowflake. Well, that's what I think is the funny like irony of this whole thing, that, that the people who are saying that people like us are snowflakes or they're, we're so sensitive, need safe base spaces, they're like the touchiest of them. And like mm-hmm. the most, uh, anyway. Yeah, this is, so the complaint about having Bree Newsom is similar to the complaint uh, about against Tulane having David Duke. Um, and he wasn't even speaking, I don't, but I'm not sure if you remember this, but um, late last year he, he was running for an office in Louisiana, and if you have 5% of the votes, you can be on the debate. doesn't matter, it's just only have 5%. And the debate was already scheduled to be held at Xavier University in New Orleans, which is a historically black college or university. And there was a lot of uproar about having him come to campus. Even though he wasn't speaking, you know, it wasn't like he's giving the talk, he's giving, he's a debate, part of a debate that was at the college. Anyway, there's plenty of uproar about that, and it's kind of interesting to see um, the switch, because the argument, people were saying, oh, we should support freedom of speech, right, the, the, and now people are saying, for an opposite cause, they should support freedom mm-hmm. of speech. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um... It's challenging. Yeah, so this week I've been reminded uh, where I am and the sense that I every once in a while feel more strongly, you know, the what have I moved to a place or have I moved to like a time too? Because there's a way in which sometimes I feel like it's not 2017 or 2016, you know, whatever, um, where I am. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you, if you could take us a step back then and tell us, um, where are you from? So I grew up in Connecticut and in Nebraska, and then for college was in the Northeast. And so I've been mostly in the Northeast, although my research for my dissertation was all throughout the South. So I was in, um, uh, well, like D.C., but then North Carolina, Georgia, Texas, and Mississippi for research. Mm -hmm. So I have spent, uh, I did spend quite a bit of time there about, um, eight, eight or nine months of doing research, but it was different. What sparked your interest about the South? Um, I'm interested. Well, it was actually, uh, it was interesting when I was doing the job, it, the interview here at the College of Charleston, it, it, it dawned on me that my interest in my dissertation topic really came out of something that happened in Charleston, which who knew like three years later I'd be getting a job there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I had originally wanted to write my dissertation on New York and like competing visions of blackness in New York when you had like the Southern 
uh, migrant population um, coming up in the 1920s and 30s, or teens and 20s. You had uh, Caribbean immigrants coming in um, also at the same time, and you had mm-hmm. this uh, black population that had been in New York for a long time. And I, had, I was very keen on doing that project, and then um, it was the 150th anniversary of secession in the Civil War. And I read this New York Times article, which was part of this big series that they had on um, the Civil War. And the article uh, was talking about how in South Carolina, in Charleston, there was going to be this Confederate celebration, this like secessionist celebration costume ball where white people in Charleston Mm -hmm. were going to dress up in antebellum costumes and celebrate the Confederacy and celebrate secession. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how, how, I guess very naively thinking to myself, how is it possible that someone thinks that that's okay? Um, How is it possible that this group of people can take away from the memory of of the Civil War the centrality of slavery and the ways in which the Civil War was fought to defend the existence of mm-hmm. slavery. And it was, um, I was so angry about that. Um, and I, you know, one of my uh, mentors from undergrad, uh, David Blight, had written a book about the memory of the Civil War um, and sort of the competing memories of the Civil War. And I was like, well, I don't want to do that. That's kind of been done. What is something that no, nobody could pretend is about anything other than white supremacy? Lynching. Hmm. And that's why hmm. I decided to do the uh, dissertation and first book on um, the, the memory of lynching in the South. Wow. That, I don't know if we've, if we've ever talked about this, but I'm from Mississippi, and my my parents, my, my dad's family is from Louisiana. Um, I do not believe that they were slave descendants. It's a little weird. Um, as you might know, many African-Americans, it's hard to trace your, your uh, history back very far. But my father's side, we can at least trace it to 1813. Mm-hmm. And there's like the story of like John Wayne like crossing Tennessee and then going to Louisiana. And then there's like, this town where there's this whole, whole bunch of Waynes. Um, and we have our own cemetery. Um, but yeah, it's just, I'm just thinking about like all the stories I've heard about my parents. I think my mother's side, my great grandparents were slaves. And just hearing about stories and like where you shouldn't go, what you shouldn't do, what happened to this uncle that did this one thing. Obviously, Money, Mississippi, where Emmett Till was brutally murdered. Um, so there's a lot of remnants in the South that I just kind of grew up with, like, intrinsically, I don't know, ingesting. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to be in a different space, but to be brought back to that memory that's just so natural mm-hmm. for me to know and to have, like, foreign people, not foreigners, you're not a foreigner, but to have people who didn't just, like, grow up with and accept it as a, a truth to kind of realize that same truth mm-hmm. out loud. I know that it does, sense, yeah, but. yeah. It was. Uh, I think that was one one of the things that, um, especially once I got into the archives, regularly surprised me. It was just I, I understood that you know white supremacy was brazen, you know, um, still is in many ways brazen, mm-hmm. 
Uh, but seeing it in the archives and the documents, hearing it in these oral histories that were recorded in the 90s, like not even that long ago, or even talking to people um, telling me stories about their family memories um, or the community memories of lynchings that happened in the meaning mm -hmm. of that um, was really powerful and really eye-opening. And it, I think, in many ways has continued to shape how I read spaces in the South. Like, it's very hard for me to walk around downtown Charleston uh, the way which I think a lot of tourists do, which is mm -hmm. to see the prettiness. Because it is, mm. like, actually pretty. Uh, there are beautiful homes that are nicely restored with beautiful mm -hmm. yards. And I yeah. can't help, though, when I walk through to see well, this. the reason why this looks this way is because money made from slave labor made it look like this. Mm -hmm. The people who actually did the labor of building this physically, like actually making the bricks and then actually building... Um, you know, doing the masonry to build these, you know, these beautiful homes, those were most likely enslaved labor most of the time. Um, and even just up the street from me, there's, I don't, it's unclear whether this is the actual tree, but there was a lynching tree in Charleston that was used in the 1870s or 80s, according to a, a slave narrative from Charleston, you know, to lynch a, a couple who are accused wow. of um, uh, poisoning their, I guess, the family they work for. Um, and mm -hmm. I live a block and a half away from a tree yeah. that's on, that, that people call the hanging tree. Um, yeah. And it's just, it, it's hard for me to disentangle this kind of consciousness or awareness from the space. I used to date a guy who lived in a neighboring town and um thursdays it was over the summer and i remember that he was just oh on thursdays i'm free because we get out early or something and i never really thought about it much the whole town just shuts down i remember kind of casually asking why is it that every time every you know office shuts down he said because that was the time when they go lynching people or mm -hmm. something like historically you just take off that afternoon and I mean that's kind of crazy, mm -hmm. isn't it? <laughs> and even not only that it was true, not only that it happened, but that nobody had the sense or the the decorum enough to say maybe we shouldn't have this practice mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. Right. Like like the law, the tenants are still there. Mm -hmm. In the same way that this Confederate flag, where oh now it we we're trying to rebrand it to mean something else, or it's it's pointless, right? It shouldn't matter, so we shouldn't have to take mm -hmm. it away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, especially with the South Carolina case, um, the flag was placed on top of the first, I mean, now it's, it was in, in front, but um, it was initially placed on top of the state house uh, during the 1960s. I'm going to, for the um, 100 year anniversary of secession. Mm -hmm. And they just never took it down. It was also happening yeah. in the midst of the civil rights movement too. So it was like this, mm -hmm. um, you know, this gesture of, of kind of anti-civil rights protesting, you know, as well. Um, so it wasn't until about ten years ago that it was taken down from the top of the building to the front of the building, and um, it's only been mm. I think a year and a half or so since it's been 
removed completely and put into a museum, apparently. Yeah, I think that this is so yeah, solemn. The theme that obviously is really emerging is the way that history, of course, is an ongoing process, and it's something that is so alive and like is not separate. And yet, it's so interesting that with these secessionists that we're talking about, but also like the way that there's been this whole industry of trying to of using plantations for like as backdrops for fashion, as for for celebrity weddings, for workshops, like that's also mm. trying to actively erase these these memories. Like so, um, our listeners who may or may not follow celebrity gossip, <laughs> like um, Ryan Reynolds <laughs> and Blake Lively's wedding was on a plantation. Boone Boone Hall. Oh, yep. I didn't know yeah. that. Very close then, by. Yeah, and, and like Andy oh, DeFranco, God. who's like a notable like white queer feminist um, songwriter, um, she also like wanted to do a songwriting workshop there a couple years ago. It was under a lot of fire, and it was like one of those very white feminist moments where she couldn't really understand why people were so upset that she was holding it on a former you know slave plantation. I mean, this is uh, why uh, Ed Baptist and others have argued for. Mm-hmm. calling plantations what they really were, which are slave labor camps. Because nobody, hopefully, is going to plan a wedding at a slave labor camp. Um, nobody's going to mm. choose to, like, out in the suburbs here, um, the names of the residential neighborhoods where all, like, the, you know, cookie-cutter houses are, are such-and-such plantation. Um Wow. So that kind of naming that sort of did, like erases the violence, erases the exploitation, um, that uh, is kind of laid bare when you actually call it what it is, uh, a slave labor camp. Um, and yet it's become so tamed and uh, as a term, plantation has become so tamed uh, down here that it's... Uh, it, it's a place where someone would want to live. Um, it's a place where someone would want to go to get married. It's a place where someone would want to go mm-hmm. to visit. Um, and not to learn the history of slavery, but to learn to see pretty houses. Mm-hmm. Which is funny because mm-hmm. even like, it's funny to me that like that violence has to be made so obvious because just the name plantation makes my skin crawl. And when I first came to Cornell, it freaked me out that there was a place called the Cornell Plantations, mm-hmm. um, which of course is yeah. a reaction that many others have had in the community. And I brought this up in my class. I was teaching Black Pariel Peril, and I was like, oh, does, does there anything on campus that might remind people of slavery? And they were like, what's with the plantations? And I'm like, I know, right? <laughs> and there was uh, just a campaign that just finished, I think, at Cornell last year that successfully changed it from the Cornell Plantations to the Cornell Botanical Gardens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas here, I mean, the place where I work, the College of Charleston, owns a plantation called, of all things, Dixie Plantation. What? Wow. Oh That's my really, God. Like, you're really <laughs> piling it on there. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think there's still debate over what to do with it. Yeah, what um, do you do with it? I don't think anything is being done with it right now, but I know that there was, um, when I first got the job, I heard kind of some speculation about what was going to be what it was going to be used for um i think some people thought it might be used Mm -hmm. for uh sports teams to practice that seems like a grotesque thing as well given of course the exploitation of college athletics and also how brace operates there right like are we going to send oh my god and what if all the athletes 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh my god. And you're like sending. Oh god. But it gets just crawling. But like my my campus itself is really interesting in that. um, So Charleston had a fairly large or relatively large free black population even in the in the interbellum period. And um, one of the institutions associated with the free black population was the Browns Fellowship Society, which was a burial society. And the burial mm-hmm. society was located uh, what is at, at what is presently the um, green space behind the library. And a few years mm-hmm. ago, uh, this is right before, I think a couple years before I came here, um, the uh, library wanted to expand into um, I wanted to move a parking lot and use the green, yeah. create this green space for students to, so sort of like a lawn with a fountain and places where students can sit and lounge and read and whatever. And they were doing construction on it and they came across graves. Mm-hmm. And these were, um, you know, this used to be a black cemetery. And what they did was they moved all the bodies to somewhere, um, I think it might, I'm pretty sure it's called like Magnolia Cemetery or something that's further up the peninsula. So they moved the bodies and um, there, there's a like a memorial to the cemetery or to the, what had been the cemetery and to the people who had been buried there at the far end of the green space. Um, but when I told my students about this, since I'm teaching this class on race, violence, and the politics of American memory, I told them about this, and they thought that it had. They thought that the memorial was a civil, sorry, it was a Civil War Confederate memorial, not a memorial to very recently um, kind of uh, removed bodies of Black people who were, had been free. That's interesting. So why do you think they didn't know? Why why do you think they made those assumptions? Um, oh, that, that the, the uh, memorial was a Confederate memorial? That it was a Civil War memorial and not like a memorial. I think that's what they're used to seeing. You know, there's like a Confederacy museum within yeah. a couple blocks of campus um, that the Daughters of the Confederacy runs, um, the carriage tours that go through campus and all, the, all around downtown um, to talk about the antebellum South without really talking about slavery very seriously. So I think that they assumed that if there's memorial on campus, it must be mm-hmm. something to do with white civil war, white something something, right? History. Mm. And I guess that I I saw that there's been a lot of pieces about, um, yeah, all these black cemeteries in the in the south that are now calling for the fact that they didn't have they've never gotten the same type of funding that the white Confederate um, dead have had to preserve those spaces, and like this like goes quite back to like institutionally like which places get supported as well um and I, I can't help but think as someone who works on like history of medicine like it's sort of grotesque that this is still happening especially for black cemeteries given that it was often black cemeteries that were looted for bodies for exper- um, medical um, and anatomy classes mm. well and i mean the medical university of south carolina is just a couple blocks away from well where i live and also where the um college is located and they were doing uh eugenic work um targeting black women um i I believe into the 60s and 70s
Yeah, this is why I really feel a sense of pride about my the family cemetery that we have um, in Louisiana, because I feel like it's very rare mm-hmm. to have this one space. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, you know, get a little emotional when I see like the grave from like eighteen something. Just realize, like I do, I know where my family came from at that point. Mm-hmm. And having all those people there. I know it sounds morbid, but I want to be buried mm-hmm. there. <laughs> I don't know. Like but, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, um, we're kind of recording this also to hear about your, your research and what you've learned, but also because it's Black History Month. And, um, I guess I had two questions. And I would, one, start off with, I have celebrated Black History, but I don't know about the history of Black History Month, and I'm kind of curious if you knew when it started or anything about Black History Month as, like, an, a U.S. institution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it started in 1926, I think it's 1926, um, by Carter G. Woodson, who was, uh, along with Du Bois, maybe, like, the two most important uh, African early African American historians, and uh, it started off as a week in February, so it was called Negro History Week. Mm-hmm. And um, over the years, I think it was by the time we get to the nineteen seventies or so, it becomes like a month long celebration. And apparently, the reason why it was uh, February was chosen was I think it was the birthdays of Lincoln and Douglas, or something like that, was the mm-hmm. reason why February mm-hmm. was chosen. Um, it's not this because it's the shortest month. It is of not the year. because it's the shortest <laughs> month of the year. Although that is that is you know curious. Um, I mean, yeah, and I have I have a lot of thoughts about uh, Black History Month. Uh, the program like <laughs> that I am in, so I'm I'm in the African American Studies program at the College of Charleston, and the motto mm-hmm. for the program is not just in February with like a big black power fist on top of it mm-hmm. and um so there's a i have a deep ambivalence about black history month because uh of what is sort of embodied in that not just in february motto um i think some attention is better than no attention perhaps but uh i think it's also um problematic to try to compartmentalize history um, completely mm-hmm. in the way that um, tends to happen in Black History Month because as though the rest of the year is something else, right? White history, mm-hmm. 11 months or something. Um, right. And I think also, um, so I think it bears, uh, that the African-American experience bears attention all year. Um, and I also think that um, for a couple of reasons, right? One is that you can't understand American history, you can't understand American politics and identity without very seriously considering um, the African American experience and the ways in which African Americans have continually tested the uh, virtues and values or the stated virtues and values of the nation. Um, but you also can't understand the rise of global white supremacy um, as uh, mm-hmm. Charles Mills would, would, would call it, uh, without looking at the African-American experience either. So I think in terms of the U.S. past and sort of the 
the global uh, space we're in right now, you can't really understand it without this this, this history. So, um, I although I think it's important that students get exposure, for example, to uh, Black History during February, I also think that um, uh, there's a tendency to separate it from the rest of American history in ways that I find deeply, deeply problematic. Um, and I also think that a lot of the ways in which people talk about that particular experience during Black History Month, uh, I mean, I'm not even talking about Donald Trump thinking that Frederick Douglass may be alive. Like, I'm not, not, even, not even that. <laughs> Beyond yeah. that, you know, there's uh, a tendency to sort of, and, and to sort of simply celebrate firsts and milestones in a way that, to me, turn right. it into trivia, right? In a way that kind of um, takes, pulls these important figures, pulls these important moments away from uh, movements, pulls it away from um, kind of deeper meaning of the uh, kind of things that people were struggling for. Uh, and I also worry that, uh, how do I put this? Although I think it's important to celebrate, like I think it's important to not think about the black experience simply in terms of struggle, because there's a hell of a lot more to the black experience than struggle. You know, there's you know beauty and art and and um, you know love and friendship and creativity and ingenuity and humor and all these other things. Um, but I do uh, worry that thinking about it in terms of important um, events, important heroes. Uh, which is the way it tends to uh, be kind of made, uh, I don't know, into these bite-sized pieces for people to consume. Uh, it takes it away from like the deeper meaning of, of uh, the experience. Yeah, I so being raised in Mississippi, um, what I found is that when I was in the South, Black History Month was felt like a thing, and it was something we observed. We observed it, but when I went to college and I went to the Northeast, there was no more Black History Month. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't something where, I just remember being very shocked and kind of feeling like, why are there no posters up right now? Where, it's like, it's like if I were talking about Christmas and I was asking where are the Christmas trees? Why is Santa Claus not in the mall right now? What's happening? Where am I? It, it felt really surreal. But on top of that, and you're talking about celebration and how we focus on the celebration at the first I also felt like my celebration of Black History Month was in some ways very superficial. Like, first person to do this, first person to do this, first person to be let into the door, not be killed, is basically what they're mm -hmm. saying, you know. James Meredith, first black person admitted to the University of Mississippi in 1962. So we kind of had all these archetypal people, and then we also, I mean, we read the same poems over again, Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston. Not that those are bad things, but they were just... Um, things that I wish I had actually learned more about black mm -hmm. history like how black people actually contributed to society what slavery was actually like for people how did it why are certain things that we do now based on this you know there was no sense of actual history so much as like here's a picture of, of a person so that respectability politics can, ru can rule your mm -hmm. life forever 
Yeah, and that's one of the things that I am very, I mean, that's one of the ways in which I'm ambivalent about it really comes out, I think, um, is that I, again, like, I think it's important, and I see this, again, more so here than I ever saw before, um, but that mm-hmm. for my students to actually, especially black students, to see their um, communities' experiences represented in classrooms. Like, I think representation is actually, actually yeah. important. Um, so I'm not trying to, you know, mm-hmm. push back on that at all. Um, but I want right. the substance of what they're getting to be um, not just not just something to memorize, not just something to sort of celebrate as the first for the sake of celebrating a first, but to think about it in terms of these broader movements, these broader kind of uh, trajectories um, in, in society. Um, I, I want them to think about it uh, just in, in, a, in a more sort of substantial way. Yeah, and here's sorry a funny thing. Speaking as the Canadian in the group, we have black the same Black History Month in Canada, and the oddness like for mm-hmm. us, Black History Month is African American history. It is very rarely anything about actual Black Canadian history. Hmm. So we learn about mm-hmm. you know, Martin Luther King. We learn about Rosa Parks. We don't like we actually have mm-hmm. um, like we don't we learn about the history of like okay, can there was slavery in Canada? Instead, it's just like this narrative, and then and then you know. African Americans came to Canada because we were the good guys, type thing. Sort of. A yeah, you accepted us once we made it all the way mm-hmm. up there. So we sort of pat yeah. ourselves on the back and be like, "Oh yes, it's the it's the U.S. problem." But that's actually what you see also in the U.S. too. I mean, there's this really lovely um, article that Russell Rickford recently wrote, uh, where he talks about the imposter king, like the imposter, the king that we've come to know that we've been introduced to. Yeah, and you know that imposter version of king is plays a i mean it's it's there for a very particular reason it's a way to kind of stifle the uh recognition of the need for continued struggle it's a way to mm-hmm. sort of turn him into like this see we finished the problem of racism we fixed it um and it's a you know that that yeah. version of, of king is meant again to pat people's had really white people self on the back, right? To say, oh, look, we've done this great thing. We fixed racism. We have we celebrate the ways in which we fixed racism by celebrating Martin Luther King. Yeah. But not talk about his anti-war stance. Not talk about his anti-poverty stance and how he was talking about the redistribution of wealth and reimagining the American economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And his condemnation of white. Or even liberals. talking about that he wasn't popular mm-hmm. in his day or as popular. There were different Mm -hmm. canons of thought about how we achieve equality Mm -hmm. i mean i find that especially an especially salient point to remember now where we're possibly in a second wave of a social a civil civil rights a civil rights movement and you know there's so many people thinking like oh don't be angry that's not going to help me body don't be violent don't say these things and or oh you're the older generation, they were more in tune. They did this mm-hmm. better. And it's like, no, when they were going through this, these are the mm-hmm. same things. There were multiple factions who thought they're, it, you know, the best way to achieve something was different. And this isn't any different. We just have to stick with this mm-hmm. long enough and, like, not tear each other down as much. But yeah. But it's, it's interesting to me to think that not everyone valued this whole peaceful perspective mm-hmm. 
there were people who were angry, you mm-hmm. know, and maybe some were willing to do things. And MLK wasn't as, like, he's got a halo around him now that wasn't there mm-hmm. when he was mm-hmm. actually like, in the movement. The FBI were actively trying to take him down. And, like, mm-hmm. it's so grotesque now to see, like, these cherry-picked quotations from Martin Luther King being used by people who would have never supported him to silence people of color, especially black people. Especially mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter, actually, right? The Well, yes, Dr. Martin Luther King would never have done like exactly what Dr. Luther King actually did, right? Like he would never protest in the yeah. streets. He would ne- he would always stick to the sidewalk. I'm like, have you seen the pictures where he's in the road and right. he's getting arrested? And right. or he would talk to the president and try to get change happen. I'm like, no. But he also had the march in the streets to get the cameras on him to make it public enough that the president saw an interest mm-hmm. in this, right? There's multiple levels mm-hmm. to to everything. Although on a complete side note, I have to say I really one of my favorite episodes is the Boondocks, is the Return of the King episode. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, for our listeners, if you don't know, um, so Aaron Magruder's the, the Boondocks. Um, how should I describe it? But anyway, there's one episode where that in this alternate reality, Martin Luther King didn't die, but he comes back to our present day, and it's like this this really like smart parody of so many things having to do with his legacy. So um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this Tumblr or um, Tracy Clayton. I think she works for BuzzFeed and she does another round podcast. But before she did any of those things, she was a blogger and she had a Tumblr called Little Known Black History Facts. And it's kind of making fun of, you know, the first that we always celebrate. So I'll give you an example. Um, let's see. Lucinda Clates first person to keep the sponge roller in her bangs all day. <laughs> <laughs> Anterior's wig, first person to literally break someone's ankles while crossing them up on the basketball court. <laughs> Trishane Bell, first person to use the phrase, but I'm sleep though, after preaching the truth. Wait. So anyway, and it's like, it's just like, it's got pictures accompanying it, and it's just amazing, like, just kind of like making it real simple, yeah. but I don't know. I so I kind of find like a good kind of mix of this celebrating the first um, these little known Black History facts, a little humor. Mm-hmm. So how do you resolve to celebrate Black History Month? Um, well, uh, I we as a program um, don't. It's not like we intentionally don't put things in February. We actually have a wonderful speaker coming on Monday. So in February, yes. so we have stuff going on in February, um, but we don't create necessarily a Black History Month program, um, in part because mm-hmm. I think that's what people expect us to do, which is just sort of extra labor that then shifts the burden for actually having to think about Black history from the rest of the campus. So mm-hmm. when other academic departments um, uh, don't, when they can just rely on us to do that for them, um, I see. I, I think that it actually kind of absolves them of any kind of uh, obligation or responsibility to be um, to, to be actually actively trying to do something for Black History Month. Mm. Um, <clears throat> But we do have programming that happens, and I, I invariably get asked to do, you know, panels or whatnot in February. Um, but we make sure that, like, all year round, we have 
yeah. uh, programming. And at least as a scholar, um, I mean, the reason why I got interested in what I do is precisely because uh, the realization I had as a uh, first-year student and in college that um, the narratives we tell really matter, that the um, mm -hmm. way in which we imagine American history really shapes um, identity, it shapes public policy, it, it, it shapes sort of the distribution of resources, it shapes a, a, a bunch of parts of American culture, um, that mm -hmm. because those narratives matter so deeply, um, it's important that we um, think about how we place various experiences relative to that sort of master narrative of, of, of history. Um, so I make sure that in my classes, uh, I never think of the African-American experience in the way that I think a lot of people do, which is like you just include it. As though like adding in Frederick Douglass in week seven, hmm. like, you know, fixes the problem, right? Um, of, of inclusion. And instead, you know, I make it very clear that I, I the, the trajectory that we uh, create, the kind of narrative that we um, uh, reconstruct of American history, um, it, that narrative itself has to change fundamentally mm -hmm. um, in a way that pushes back against this kind of progressive narrative uh, and, and in a way that doesn't marginalize, for example, slavery. Um, from the central kind of tension in the United States and in doing that in my courses and in not just doing it in implicitly but actually having them read things that tell them that that's what I'm doing um, I think that that on a daily basis or like in that my, the everyday practice of my teaching and scholarship um, does the work that I hope that something like Black History Month would do um, to sort of dislodge uh, the sense that we can kind of compartmentalize or marginalize the black experience. Sure. I have a question that encompasses both your teaching um, and the personal. So for our listeners, um, last year we had an episode that we called like when Bruce Lee meets Bruce Leroy, which is about um, the intersection of Asian American, African American, and cultural, political, um, literary, uh, everything. Uh, and so uh, Mari is actually teaching a class right now at College Charleston that has um, the title, I believe. Um, so thinking about Asian American, African American comparative racialization. And so I was really curious to hear how that class is going, but also on a personal, um, as, as non-black people of color, what does this sort of work mean for us? And like, how does one engage that? Yeah, so um, th thank you for letting me um, steal, <laughs> borrow the title for this course. It's been really um, real cool. We're so it's cool. been really, really fun to teach. And actually, the spring, uh, the African American Studies Program Spring Film Festival, which we do one every semester, um, is basically along the same theme, or is following the same theme. So we're screening um, Enter the Dragon, The Last Dragon. Black Dynamite and mm -hmm. Yojimbo, and then lastly, uh, the first season of Afro Samurai as a way to sort of nice. talk about these uh, these sorts of things. Although now that I've watched Lady Snowblood, I think Yojimbo will have to get the boot next time so I can, I think I really it actually that. makes oh, sense. I've only seen clips. Of Lady Snowblood? 
It's like a, it stars Meiko Kaji and she's uh, plays this uh, woman whose uh, father was, or at least her mother's husband was murdered. And I think her half brother was murdered and her mother was raped. And it was, um, and her mother has, um, basically gets pregnant with her and is in prison and has this child mostly so that she can create a generation that will avenge the wrongs done to the family. So the baby is born while she's in prison and is then sort of given to this monk who teaches the baby or the, when she's a little girl um, all of the ways of like the sword. And she turns into this like assassin who goes back. She's so badass. She goes back and like gets this list of like the people she's supposed to, who are responsible for the things, you know, for the murders and the rapes and is, um, she like knocks them off one by one. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't remember if you many mentioned this cause my audio clipped out, but this is actually one of the main inspirations for Kill Bill mm-hmm. for our listeners. It is. Yeah. So I thought that would actually pair well, actually better with Afro Samurai, which is a vengeance-themed TV show. Except in that case, it's like the Afro Samurai is avenging his father's death. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so the class, um, the question was, how's it going? Or what, what, is, what yeah, am I doing how, in it? How's it going? And then, like, also, like, con- connecting that also to what I'm also personally interested in also is like how we engage um, being allies or accomplices as non-black people of color. Yeah. So the, the way I organized the class, um, although uh, I, I wouldn't quite as cleanly disentangle the political from the cultural, but it's the first half is looking at political connections and disconnections. And the second half is looking at cultural disconnections and connections. Um, so we're just finishing up the political um, half of the course, although the political stuff in a different iteration comes up in the cultural. Um, and um, it's been a, I don't know, it's been really uh, fun to teach in that it brings together experiences that a lot of students certainly don't under, read together. So they've been looking at black internationalism, so like anti-imperialist um, uh, and anti-racist uh activism bringing together, for example, someone like Du Bois, and um, not just in the uh, Pan-African side of things, but in the Pan-Asian, um, like uh, Indian anti-imperialism, like those kinds of connections is what they've been looking at. Um, and, and I think if I were to critique my own syllabus, which I'm happy to do, uh, the thing that I would like to add in the next time I teach it is a little bit more of the disconnection. So we talk a lot in here about the convergences, um, to think about like the possibilities for, um, political cooperation, um, across, uh, non-white racial lines. But I think there's also quite a bit to say in terms of, um, uh, the, uh, disconnections, the, uh, conflicts, between, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, Asian Americans and African Americans um, that I don't get into very much in this particular syllabus in the political side. But in the cultural side, there's a little bit more of that uh, when we talk about appropriation. 
But I think it's, uh, I'm hoping that the course helps students think about uh, anti-racism in an international uh, kind of context. I also hope that it helps students think about, uh, at least especially where I teach, where uh, race is so black and white. Um, it lets them think about other non-white people in the in the country in the world, and um, the differences in uh, racism experienced by Asian Americans when compared to African Americans. And uh, one of the ways that we're we're doing that is I had them just read this. Uh, double biography of Grace Lee Boggs and James Boggs. And, oh, yeah, I you posted about that. Yeah, and uh, James Boggs, who's from Alabama, rural Alabama, um, and becomes an auto worker in Detroit, has a very different experience uh, of racism than his future wife, Grace Lee Boggs, who is Chinese-American and is a first-generation um, Chinese-American, um, grew up in New York City uh, with at least relatively wealthy uh, sort of middle class parents got a PhD in philosophy and they converge in Detroit over this kind of shared uh, Marxist um, anti-racist politics uh, but in it's important to understand how each of them has a very different experience of racism in the US um, and I think that for, for students uh, especially in this in such like a black white black and white uh, racial geography that we that is kind of dominant down here, especially. Um, I think it's helpful to see other ways um, and to understand um, how race isn't uh, or racism isn't sort of uh, this experience in the same way. I'd be interested in your scholarly perspective on this, Mari. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I say that because I am a Southerner, but it, it has always um, left me just kind of speechless whenever I talk to people who are from the North. I hear like sort of two strains of things. One, like, oh my God, the South is so bad. It's so racist in the South. It's, I would never go down, like black people say, I feel unsafe. I feel like I'll just be lynched if I go down there even though I am proof of, her, of a black person who has not. Um, <laughs> but that aside, I really do hear very frequently people othering them, separating themselves as much as they possibly can from the South with claims that the South is more racist or like something about what happens in the South is they disconnect mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and I even hear that in, in North Carolina, ironically. They feel like they're like, you know, you're only, first of all, you are s Southern and but they somehow want to say Mississippi. So if you go to the dirty South, it's as bad. And so I'm curious yeah. if you have any um, any insights into this kind of um, response yeah. <laughs> that could be enlightening for listeners and for me too. Well, I think that there's two, well, there's probably more than two, but there's at least two <laughs> motivations for the, well, um, the South isn't, particularly racist, right? Um, and I think the one motivation is to point out how nationally in the United States, white supremacy is pervasive, right? It's just, it's not mm -hmm. regional. Um, and it certainly manifests itself in slightly different ways depending on where you are. But uh, the, the reality of racism is pervasive throughout the United States. 
and um, and that sounds like what you're saying, right? You know, it's, yes. There's like there's no, um, and I mean at least you know as someone who grew up in the Northeast, uh, we learned uh, a very particular way of talking about slavery that did not include the ways in which Northern industries benefited yep. immensely. The textile from, revolution, yeah. Exactly, from investments made through slave labor, and that the economy of the United States in general, but especially in the Northeast, would not be what it is without enslaved labor. So you can't pretend as though the absence of enslaved people, um, I mean, first of all, there were a lot of enslaved people in the Northeast too, but like the absence uh, post like 1830 um, doesn't mean that slavery wasn't deeply, deeply influential, and at the very least, slavery but like racism was all over the place i mean indiana was um and is i would say you know especially racist you know in a right because the in indiana it was illegal for free blacks to even move there for quite a long time wow so um so it's not as though uh the south is uh unique um although certainly the manifestations of racism yeah, is, is, is specific to place in, in certain respects. Um, but I think the other motivation uh, for, for that comment, which I've heard a lot of white Southerners um, utter, mm-hmm. is to <clears throat> deflect. Um, so it's not to say that everywhere it was racist, it was, well, they were worse than us, as though it's like some kind of competition. Um, and I think that uh, the deflection I have issues with, um, and, and this is not something that's new either. If you go back to the 1930s and 40s and 50s, um, you know, when anti-lynching legislation was being debated, for example, Northern, uh, Northern Republicans would say, well, you know, we need anti-lynching legislation in order to you know, stop lawlessness in the South. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. barbaric and all these other things. Um, and then you would have these Southern Democrats say, no, you know what's really lawless? It's those black people in the North who are um, uh, not controlled by Jim Crow anymore. And it's like the gangs of like Al Capone that huh. that's the real problem. So there was this like deflection as though like you could somehow ignore lynching if you focused on northern crime rates or something that's like black crime black on black crime exactly talk about black on black crime that's the real issue mm-hmm. and so i think that there's there is that way in which for some people when they say and i think it's supposed to especially white southerners when they say well racism is also in the north um, although I think I completely think that that is true, I think sometimes the motivation behind that statement is to um, deflect and to um, deny rather than to think about white supremacy in a national, right. um, in a national way. Yeah, it becomes very frustrating um, because the South becomes a scapegoat for all negative behavior, and again as when I lived in the Northeast, it just really, really frustrated me to always have people saying that the South was worse and that those things would never happen in the North because it fails to acknowledge the complicity of the North mm-hmm. in the activities that happened in the South. So the slaves may have physically been in the South producing the cotton or the sugar or the tobacco, but it was the factories in the North that used that cotton, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that 
it, it came full circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, basically everyone's hands are bloody, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and even if when there there's the absence of it, like I think that we're talking about the north and south, but east-west divide, for example, like people like to think of like Oregon and Portland as like this cute white hipster progressive state, but mm-hmm. it was a state that was founded on explicit, like that was supposed to be meant to be a white state. Like, yep. So mm-hmm. even though it may try to historically try to escape certain types of complicities, like this is everywhere. It's just in different um, mm-hmm. capacities. So here's mm-hmm. another question for you. We were, we were, we've been talking about Black History Month and how there are some ways in which um, Black history is not actually being taught and how history, African-American history needs to be included in the history of, in the American history. Um, And I think on the opposite extreme or the natural conclusion of that kind of argument is, should we get rid of Black History Month altogether? I I don't (laughs) think so. I think that um, Black History Month is, um, well, I don't, I can't, in the foreseeable future, I can't imagine there being the kind of change necessary to mean that, like, there's no need for that specific kind of uh, attention paid. Um, I think the moment at which that happens, the ways in which people understand what it means to be American, what the American experience is, and what American history is, would be profoundly, profoundly different. There would have to be, like, a reckoning with uh, a past that is so often um, silenced or so often erased. in the, in the present, it's, it's erased in silence in, in many quarters. So um, I would, um, I do think that it's very important to have something like Black History Month. Um, I would just, uh, I, I think my, what would, I guess, resolve some of the ambivalence I have towards Black History Month would be to think about um, why we remember the things that we do in the particular ways that we do, you know, what version of Martin Luther King are we thinking about? What um, story are we telling ourselves during Black History Month rather than um, Mm -hmm. getting rid of any kind of specific kind of uh, attention to the African-American experience? Like, I do think that it's important um, given the broader context. But I I think that pushing away kind of moving away from first, moving away from the kind of trivia and into something more substantive that um, causes people to rethink the American historical narrative, like that would be what I would um, like Black, uh, Black History Month to be doing. Yeah, me too. Me too. Mm-hmm. My favorite song... Uh, is lift every voice and sing mm-hmm. and um, I just think it's so cool um, I used to sing it every every Black History Month <laughs> mm-hmm. all four verses like I'm in church and I, I just think it's one of those beautiful songs um, I will not sing it but I definitely with the Na- Negro National Anthem it's been referred to mm-hmm. um I think I'm just re- oh also reflecting on how there are things that I kind of grew up with traditionally that I feel like once I left the South or my hometown, once the population of Black people got low enough, it just never came up anymore. And I found myself being the person who remembered these things. 
Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Zine? No, I was just thinking that, um, so I think another argument that sometimes we have to anticipate when talking about Black History Month is one that you encountered, Liz, when we were doing our GRFing. Oh, what was this? House. Do you remember this? No. Um, a, a certain resident of ours complaining, well, what about Asians, Asian Americans? Oh, that was classic. Yeah. That was classic because we had a, there is Asian History Month. Look yes. it up. So you're like, first thing there is. And good day. You know, I mean, those are the best when you can actually, that actually is, and you can just keep going on with your conversation like mm-hmm. it never happened. I, that's probably why I don't remember this anymore. Um, um, but, like, yes, there is Asian History Month. And this one, he, he, this conversation was interesting because, um, and it might go back to, like, this relationship that um, minority groups have amongst each other in their recognition. But I very much think this student was someone who didn't think about the ways in which their Asian identity um, was an identity, <laughs> you know, like I think the heat they were doing the fly under the radar, just be smart and everything's going to be fine, not thinking about the sacrifices and that is his people may have had in the U.S. or just even thinking of himself as a minority, I don't think that crossed that person's mind. Um, which was actually the the really hard thing for me because it wasn't even as if he cared about those types of issues. It really just seemed like a counterpoint to him for no reason, mm-hmm. right? Like he could have got, it didn't matter to him whether it was there or not. He just wanted to make an argument mm-hmm. that there needed to be an Asian history month when he doesn't really seem to care about his Asian-ness in that yeah, way to even know about his but, own history. And I'm mm-hmm. telling him more about himself than he knows and he's just giving me a blank stare. And I'm like, yeah, go re- go go to Google. And I'm time for this. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that also, like, even if he did care, like, for example, some of the people that we see come to enter to Asian American studies is often from this, like, the very burgeoning sense of one's own identity is sometimes, like, antagonistic towards other minorities as if it's sometimes a competition. Mm. And so that's why I think, like, that's another way that I see his comments coming out is like, well, what about, like, that this over-reliance, sometimes there's this fault that, especially I think we Asians in North America have, that when we're trying to claim space, we somehow think that we have to do it by like talking over um, yeah, black people in North America, but that's really not the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, um, so in one of the classes I'm teaching this semester is called um, Remembering and Forgetting Race, Violence, and the Politics of American Memory. Mm-hmm. The, uh, we start off with some theory about memory and things like that, but then we have three main cases for students to, to think about, you know, how we think about this, these particular cases, these particular historical cases, and what it means that we think about them in these various ways. So the first case is uh, American ens- uh, enslavement. Um, and then uh, genocidal violence against Native Americans, the second one out west. And then the third one is Japanese American internment. And with the uh, that kind of succession, it mm-hmm. allows for students to, again, see the ways in which uh, racism is not, um, and sort of a kind of imperialism mixed in there, right, is, is not experienced in the same way for all groups. Um, but I think it also, um, attempts to not to recognize those differences without sort of pitting groups against one another mm-hmm. um, and, I th- and I'm hoping that this last section which I've taught all in one other time before on Japanese American internment 
Um, I'm hoping that given the ways in which the experience of internment, which by the way today is the 75th anniversary of that executive order, uh, mm -hmm. that the that, that I'm hoping Wait, what the was the executive in... order, just for the listeners? Oh, it's, uh, I'm going to forget what the number is, but whatever it was, was uh, to... I think it's 9066 or something? It's definitely starts with a 9, there's a 0 in it somewhere. Okay, yeah. <laughs> 9, <laughs> 0, something, something. Uh, but it's, uh, it was to, um, uh, it was the order to create the internment camps for Japanese and Americans. Um, that order, um, there's been a lot of reference to recently, uh, with, it, 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 where, uh, Japanese Americans who survived that ordeal. Yeah, 9066. Okay, 9066, there we go. Um, that people who survived have been, we have your back, like we won't, we're going to push to make sure this doesn't happen wow. here. Um, and I think that in uh, the end of that section of the course, that's something that, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about is the, um, rather than it being about, well, this is the one reparation, one of the few reparations cases that have actually, <laughs> you know, worked out where the federal government paid people, not oh. very much. Yeah, like $20,000, I think per person for whoever was still alive in the 19 like uh, the late 1980s interesting hmm. but rather than it being about like we'll see how um i mean there's a variety of reasons why it was the only successful or one of the few prominent sort of successful reparations claims um i want them to think about well, why it was successful um but then also how that experience has then created this bond between, um, you know, Japanese Americans and, um, you know, the, the contemporary kind of uh, group that's that's being targeted in this way, which is Muslims. I want to shift a little bit um, as we also start to think about closing, but talk about your. Um, your career. Okay. <laughs> so you have now, you're like a year in to being a professor, right? I'm, I'm two and a half, two almost years. three years in. Yeah. Almost three years. Mm -hmm. And so what is that like being a new faculty member? Um, you know, I, I, um, in so many ways, I really enjoy deeply what I do. Um, the, teaching experiences that I've had here um, have renewed my sense of purpose as a scholar in certain ways. Hmm. Uh, I think that for the students I teach here, uh, because in African American studies, um, I, I don't teach like a survey of US history or anything. Okay. Um, I think that my courses, um, I'm, I mean, just from like feedback from students, I think really, um, they they come to the courses really hoping for, um, I don't know, I, or I guess they come away from the courses, um, in many cases with like a different way of seeing, uh, which is always wonderful to get yeah. to have that kind of impact on students. Are your uh, classes think, often diverse? 
and like backgrounds, whether that be uh, class or ethnicity or gender orientation, sexual orientation. So my class, so the College of Charleston is, I think, seven to eight percent black, but my courses are eighty-five percent black, hmm. usually. The so blackest place a, on campus. Sorry, I just definitely, had to say that. <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. And and I think that that's actually part of why the classes um, have the impact that they do. Is that you know it's. Um, you know, I have black students say to me that this is the only class or one of the few classes where they're not the only black student in the class mm-hmm. or one of two black students in the class. And so they feel like they're not being asked to represent all black people. They feel like if they have something to say about race, it's not going to be, um, they don't have to be defensive about it mm. um, in the way that they would in other spaces on campus. Yeah. And um, I mean, I remember in the fall, I... Um, there were a bunch of these police shootings over the summer, and then there were a couple at the very beginning of the fall semester. Oh, my God. And South my, Carolina. Yeah, and my way of dealing with this was, look, um, I'm going to bring in a poem. We're going to read this poem, and we're going to talk about how Elizabeth Alexander's poem speaks to this moment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I had students who, like, actually broke down in class, like, because it and I think part of it was that we were actually talking about something that had been on their mind and they hadn't had a space to talk about it outside like in a classroom right elsewhere and I think they felt comfortable enough around their peers and me most especially their peers to be kind of that vulnerable Mm -hmm. um and I think it's sad that that is that my class is the one of the few spaces where they feel comfortable like that but at the very least I'm glad I have provided or at least I hope I've provided for some of them like that space Mm -hmm. that Um, is so much trauma I mean I'm interrupting you but Walter Scott was one of the most I think that hurt a lot because it was one of the most blatantly obvious you know like we're in these like they always make up these stories about what happened and and these character defamations but there's a video that actually showed what really happened and then he lied before the video came out and you know anyway I'm just thinking about how um because of where you're positioned and because of like the closeness to what you study and what and the things that are happening but as well as being in the same place the same state um I imagine that you have had a different interaction with your students because of that or there's there's like the different the population is closer than it might be for other people and what is that what has that been like for you like how do you manage being in the classroom being for your students and also still managing to teach the material that you need to well I think that the material that I teach it's it's not that much of a stretch right to mm-hmm. talk about the things that are going on in the news um, you know, when we when we read uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates or we read, um, uh, like, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw or we're reading mm-hmm. um, Michelle Alexander, the things that they're talking about have direct resonances with the lived experiences of my students. So it's not abstracted, right? So when I talk about um, uh, racial profiling, um, invariably I have a student talk about well so what happens to me on campus is 
I get pulled over by the police once a week. Wow. Um, and, uh, or it's my cousin who this happens to, or it's my brother that this happens to, mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I think it's, there's a kind of catharsis, maybe that's too mean of resolution, but there's a kind of release that students get to kind of get to see their experience talked about in class mm-hmm. and a way to sort of understand it. Um, and then for our white students, for whom many of these things are abstractions, like they have no personal, even sort of secondary kind of personal experience with these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, it's eye-opening. Um, and I've had white students come up to me and say, like, I, I just, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I just didn't know anyone who this has happened to until, like, whatever student in class said something. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's... Um, it's directly related to the material that we're talking about a lot, most of the time. Um, but I actually welcome the um, disruption. If I don't even really think of it as a disruption, but like the change of plans. Because um, I think of my role as a professor, yes, it's about whatever I, uh, you know, covering whatever material or getting students to think critically about issues. Um, but it's also, I want to be attentive to the present. I mean, that's the, pre- the reason why I do like the, the kind of work that I do is because it's, even if though I'm talking about a hundred years ago, it's deeply tied to like present, presentist yeah, preoccupations. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do you find in this Zion kind of mentioned this before when she was asking about um, being um, non-black people of color. Do you ever find it interesting? Um, do you have to work harder to reach students or kind of assert your credibility in the field? Um, uh, it really, most of the time, I, I don't really think so. Um, once in a while, I get a student who asks me why I'm interested in studying what I study, and that's clearly where it's coming from. Like, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> um, but I actually am completely fine with that skepticism uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that I am sure that they have probably um, come across someone who is um, not black, who is uh, purporting to know something of the black experience in ways that is just that are just gross like you mm-hmm. and and I understand that that most likely is a part of their experience and that that might be where the skepticism is coming from and I understand that mm-hmm. I'm completely fine with that um and so I I'm fine with having to kind of show myself show my cards you know show my um mm-hmm. sort of prove myself in that way to, to students not that I ever feel like that's a that's always a process that's never sort of completed um yeah, so I, I do think that every once in a while I get that kind of skepticism, but um, I hope that based on the way I talk about the subject matter that, that we're studying um, and the way that I talk to the students, that um, uh, hopefully those kinds of fears are at least somewhat allayed. But I, I know that, um, like I said, I'm, I'm completely fine with the skepticism based on just knowing how other people can be. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. It's like acknowledging your presence in the conversation that this is a one time people ask me this question, but in my other spaces, maybe, I don't know, it's mm-hmm. a different question. Yeah. Yeah. Zion left us. Yeah. Not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I think we'll just keep talking and she'll come back on. Okay. But this is, yeah, thank you for doing this. It, I've, Maybe, I don't know if I should wait for her to come back on, but I just, Zion. Yeah. You're back. I know, it completely cut me off. That's fine, we just decided to keep talking and we figure the flow would be good. But I find talking about black history is hard because I think it feels very personal. Mm -hmm. And I don't, um, I think my persona is to be personal, Mm -hmm. but in doing so, I definitely keep things under wraps. That's how I can be personal. Like, mm-hmm. it's, like, a semblance of pers- of being personal while I keep, like, the deep personal stuff. Like, that stays personal. Mm-hmm. Um, but this feels familial, you know? It feels different. It feels, like, yeah, it's just very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if I could imagine having to talk about these kinds of things in classes while I'm also trying to figure out how I feel about them internally as well. I mean, that's why the day after the election, so like the election happened and the morning after I was teaching and I, oh God. that was a, I mean, we, we didn't really talk about it until Friday because that Wednesday I just was like, I, I can't, I don't even know. <laughs> um, like I don't even know. <laughs> and so there are these moments where I feel like I'm processing things and there, there was a time when, um, I think, uh, I mean, I'll admit that I, there was a conversation right after the election, we were reading Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow in class, and uh, a white student said something that um, was just, to me, outlandish. And what what did offensive. they say? It's a, okay I believe, to say. Uh, I believe what he said was something along the lines of like, well, um, if, uh, he was talking about drug dealing, and okay. was saying, that uh, drug dealers should, um, like there's no context for understanding drug dealers, they're just breaking the law, they should, they get, they're getting what they deserve without thinking about like the broader context of like, well, why does someone um, choose to, um, to the extent that it's a choice, you know, ha- uh, engage in illegal activities in mm-hmm. spaces where there are very few economic opportunities. And um, he just, could not imagine that being the case. And one of my students um, got really angry and turned around and said, my father dealt drugs. He was supporting, and she starts listing off like me and my sister and my mom and my, you know, my cousin, Mm -hmm. his sister and Mm -hmm. like my, you know, and kind of explained her personal experience with that and I remember like if she hadn't said that I was like boiling up Mm -hmm. inside with anger um and I think that uh were it not for that student kind of displacing the attention from me I'm not sure what I would have done or what what I would have said Mm -hmm. um and then in that same, it was a different class, but in that same kind of time right after the election, uh, we were sitting around a circle talking about um, this 
quote that, uh, or this kind of idea that Chad Williams, who is a professor up at, I think, Brandeis, had sort of mentioned on campus like a couple days earlier about how we're, we, it seems like, he's like, I don't want to be alarmist, but it feels like we're on the brink of what could be uh, a second reconstruct or second uh, redemption, so like the end of reconstruction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was when like the clan came back and and um, really not came back. The clan existed, was born, and used, mm-hmm. there was like this spate of racial violence that uh, took away political power from uh, Republicans in the South, most especially Black Southerners. And uh, we were sort of talking about this, and one of my students. Uh, asked me if uh, like what are what are we supposed to do? <laughs> this is like this is like <laughs> the big question. Three days after the election, I'm like I I have no idea. I I I, I mean, and what I said was you know that's a really hard question. Wow. Um, I think. We just have to, we have to fight it. We have to resist it. We have to push back against it. And it was, that was maybe the hardest teaching moment I've ever had because the, the sincerity of the question and the way in which it seemed like it was coming from, like the, the stakes were so high for the student. Like she really wanted an answer from me that was going to be satisfying, that was going yeah. to sort of help her deal with, you know, <sighs> all this stuff. And I felt like I'm gonna, I'm going to disappoint you so much with what I'm about to say because I don't know. Like I'm still trying to work this out. I'm still trying to work this out. You know, it's been it's been, it's been months yeah. now, but you know, um, I think that that's uh, yeah. I have was... felt very proud about the protest. Um, just thinking, okay. Because it seems like the resistance is forming. At first, it was very nascent, and it felt like, what can we do? What power do we have? Am I alone? Because it seemed maybe I didn't know things the way I thought I knew. And then to have the election and to have the protest, the women's march, and then other marches, and then you know people actually going to the airports to to say they don't like something, hearing about people going to town halls and talking to their their congressmen and senators, their representatives has been really um, inspiring, kind of hopeful and kind of um, satisfying my pettiness. <laughs> you know, like if this is going to happen, at least we're not going down without a fight. And at mm-hmm. least it's going to be hard for him the entire time mm-hmm. in a way that I think is very presidential. I mean, Every president has protests. Certainly Barack Obama had a lot of um, opposition. But who can say they had a protest larger than their inauguration attendance? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I know that's so small. Nothing's truly happened from it. And you know what I mean. Like, it's it's different, but it has kind of encouraged me and at least make me smile, Mm -hmm. made me smile, like, every now and then. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I still don't know. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, like, again, the ways in which I'm working through things uh, while I'm talking about them to to students every once in a while. Like, it, it, I remember the, my first semester, it caught me one time. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, we were talking about intersectionality. We were talking about perceptions. 
of uh, or how, how race is created like so how like uh, sort of uh, a combination of uh, how race is socially constructed and how it is in intersect how these sort of identity ideas about identity are, are intersectional and I sort of mentioned and I I've never done this ever again, but I say, so <laughs> when you see me, like, what do you see? Like, or when you, when you think of a professor, what do you imagine? Yeah. And you know, so like, like, like an old white guy. <laughs> and I'm like, I know. Tweed jacket. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, I know. And I, and I actually like, I caught, got caught in my throat. Like when I was saying, like, I know that very well because I know that's not how people see me. Mm. And I will never, and like I was, I, I think ever since then I've been really um, reluctant to make myself the, the subject. Mm. Um, because I was, I was worried. I was, I was like on the brink of like losing it. Like it caught in my yeah. throat. I'm with you. I am with you. I'm too with you. I'm like, <laughs> it's like reaching my point here. <laughs> reaching yeah. like this, you know, part where I can't talk anymore. Mm-hmm. It's your turn, Zai. <laughs> being, being caught. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think that... It, it, it's just, I think which is... It brings me to what I think is important about the work that we do, both in our research, but also what we're trying to do in our podcast, right? To, to expand for ourselves and to recognize ourselves as being able to have do that type of work. I was gonna say like so that we could see ourselves, but of course it's a podcast we can't see ourselves. <laughs> we can <laughs> you know? so we can hear ourselves. <laughs> yeah, but like as Mara was saying, it reminds me like there's the hashtag was going around like hashtag like I'm a I think I look like a professor or something mm-hmm. like that, and then there's the more recent one like hashtag actual living scientist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, it was actually the I got the uh, women and gender studies program at the College of Charleston to create uh, t-shirts that are, they're black t-shirts that just say professor. Ooh. And all the, like a, it'll be actually like a little fundraising thing for them too, but the, but uh, female professors around campus are going to purchase them and wear them uh, as a way to sort of demonstrate our, um, the ways in which we're often misread, because I can't tell you how many times I've been woke, just oh my god the things people have said to me um on this campus you know you know yeah. the you i actually had someone tell me to my face uh you look pretty today not professorial but professional whoa did they know you were a wow. professor or is a complete stranger this is someone who knows i'm a professor oh my gosh why god, that's really loaded yeah Femininity and intellect apparently are completely can't go together. Ideas, values. Also, um, you can't have you can't have more than one black more than one black person in a lab. So I had a student who is shadowing me. She is a freshman. She is Nigerian, um, Nigerian American, and she this is her first day in lab, and you know. I'm like over the moon because I got a minority student. You know, I've never, this never happens ever. Well, not in this, I've never mentored a black student. And so being able to kind of 
mirror myself just had more significance for me than I think it did for her. You know, like it, yeah. The point is, is that we're in the lab and then this guy comes in and he goes, oh, is this your, your sister? And, um, uh, you know, and at first I, I mistook him and I thought he was asking me was my daughter. And then I said like, no, I'm too young to have a daughter, a college age daughter. Uh-huh. And he's like, no, no, I didn't say daughter, I said sister. And I'm like, she's not my sister. And he's like, you guys look so much alike. And we're like, we don't look oh alike. And it was, like, honestly, it was deflating uh-huh. for me because I mm-hmm. was like, this is going to be a great experience, you know. Um, I enjoy mentoring people. I mentor students all the time, right? Um, but it also struck to me, even though this person had just joined the lab and it actually just come to the U.S., um, I started acting petty and started, like, calling all the Asian people, like, oh, is that your sister? Is that your mother? <laughs> oh, t- tell your mother that I need to talk to her, you know? <laughs> but just that I, like, I, I don't know. Like, I, it's like you can overthink it, but then even under, any way you think about it, it's still messed up that yeah. you would assume mm-hmm. that, too, that we're related, but you don't assume the Asian people are related or the Russian students or... Um, you know, the, the Turkish students, like, if they walk in a hall together, they're not related, mm-hmm. you know? Well, another thing that happened here, <laughs> I think I've told Zion this before, I was at a function. Uh, it was like an end of the semester uh, reception mm-hmm. for faculty members in my school. Okay. And I happened to be standing next to a man and there was another man that was not that close to me but kind of close to me mm-hmm. and somebody uh who I had met before who apparently had forgotten I was a professor asked me whose better half I was it's like couldn't Ugh. be a professor I had to be someone's like wife yeah yeah <laughs> That's another conversation because I find that like being being unmarried in the academy is weird to some people. I don't know. Like it seems like you're supposed to have your life like having your life together means you have a partner and like you figured out your two body problem successfully and you know when you chat with people it's like ah oh, the kids and the wife and the trip and blah 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 and so like you can't participate in that if you don't have that. I know, at least in, in like when it comes to networking and things, like yeah. they're always asking, and I've always found that not having an answer, like having the empty space, is, is just awkward to that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was going to say that. Oh, sorry, that I saw specifically for Mari's field history, um, there was actually a study done shown that men with with families in history do much better than women with families or single women in history yeah yeah although single women apparently are more successful at getting is it full or tenure than single men or something like that Hmm. because of like the labor yeah i think it was i think i'm pretty sure i read that one time it was like the labor displacement um so like women when they're married have to do more work and men, when they're married, have to do less work. And so, I like in the home, so that it mm-hmm. benefits net um, towards men who are married. 
So no one has ever um, asked me whose better half I was, but what is happening now is that people just don't ask at all. Um, hmm. Or they think I have cats. <laughs> I'm not it's kidding. Like the closest thing is, like, I have a friend who really loves cats. <laughs> no, I'm... That's me. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, someone was trying to give me, like, a some encouragement, and they said whenever I get, like, sad, I think about my... I think about my daughter and she gives me strength and he looks at me and he's like, I guess you could think about your cats and I don't own really? any cats. I don't own any animals, that's, but that's that was so his strange. response. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You know, this sounds depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's why I'm having finding difficult to respond. It's like, oh. It does, but I'm actually really happy that you're a faculty member and I'm happy that you, are able to be there for your students to give them this outlet and also this perspective about their history that they may not have known. I personally know for me that was one of the most rewarding um, parts of my undergraduate career, actually learning about black history and the history of the South and how my people's history fit into and was very integral to the success of the United States. Mm-hmm. It, just made me, it just made me feel more p- empowered than the other narratives that were being thrown at me, particularly as I entered a college setting where blackness became more um, less clear, mm-hmm. right? Like there's there's the diaspora that to deal with at this point. You have different people coming from different places and have different entry points. It's very interesting. Yeah, no, it's been I, it's been um, very uh, rewarding to teach here, and I think the other thing that I've been particularly happy about here is that I've had the pleasure of teaching students who like just just like honestly inspire me like I have students who um, do so much uh, activism outside of wow. class mm-hmm. uh, some of whom are like community organizers now that they have graduated actual community organizers <laughs> yeah like actual community organizers <laughs> like actual activists you know and uh, it's actually been really, I don't know, like I, I don't think I'm overstating when I say inspiring just to be, um, you know, around students who so take so much from the class and put it into this other really productive mm. space. Um, and that's been really wonderful. So it's sort of like that student who asked you, like, so what do we do? And you're like, actually, ask your peers. Right, exactly. <laughs> actually, see what they're doing. Yeah. Let's shop this out. Let's talk with everyone and do this. <laughs> actually, I found that a very useful strategy. Um, um, if you get a bunch of scientists in the room, like, first of all, you got to get them to trust each other to actually tell them what's going on and not think someone's going to steal your idea. But... Mm-hmm. but um, to, I, I use it as an exercise to get people to realize how much knowledge is in a room and a problem that you think is unsolvable, you just don't have that expertise. And usually if you ask a question, if the room is large enough, someone will have the answer or a person to talk to to help you get to where you want to go. I found that out at, at a networking event and I thought, I wonder if I could apply that to a scientific room and it, and it worked the same way. It was really great. We should rely on yeah. our peers a lot more. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I got to do a, a independent study with a student last semester that, um, like, I read with a student a bunch of things that I hadn't read before, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, the course was on feminist anti-racist pedagogy. Amazing. Which was I really helpful. At some point, I want to see that syllabus. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, and so it was actually helpful for me to get to talk about this. And this is a student who I really trust. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I would tell them about things that, I've, you know, that I do in the classroom or things that I am anxious about in the classroom. And it was a really productive space for me to think about um, sort of an anti-hierarchical, welcoming way of teaching. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Okay, so I think we'll, we'll end here. It was so great to have you on the podcast, Mari. Tell us about any upcoming projects you might have or where people can find any of the work that you've done. So everything that I've done is like in the process of being reviewed or written. So there's there's nothing coming out of the pipeline anytime um, in the in the near future. Mm-hmm. But um, I am presenting a paper about Ta-Nehisi Coates and James Baldwin at the African American Intellectual History Society conference uh, in in the end of March. Uh, I'll be on a panel with a uh, a professor who's writing on uh, Howard Thurman and Baldwin. Um, so the the the, the uh, three figures are all come together there, um, and continuing to work on the uh, book manuscript on memory, and the second project that I've that's been stewing in the uh, back back of the burner um, on satire, irony, and deception as a mode of African Americans for political critique is also there. Which is that sounds awesome. Our friend Danielle's Morgan's work. Yes. And actually our fingers are crossed right now because all three of us might be on a panel together. Yes. That would be amazing. But we'll see about that. Yeah.